You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Center is Steve Baff. Uh, he's a sociology professor here at the University of Washington, and he's here to sort of give the overview of, of the topic today. Uh, I won't get into many more details. You have his bio in uh, your packets, as we've mentioned multiple times, and we are short on time, so I don't want to eat into his presentation schedule. Okay, great. To go into his great detail, all the themes that are, I ta- I'll touch on briefly in the lecture because I know you're going to have other presenters who are going to talk in greater detail, for example, about Brexit or about radical right parties in Eastern Europe and so on. So I'm going to talk really about the sort of historical background, the origins of the neo, what I call the neo-national parties in Europe. And you'll see why I'm going to call them that instead of calling them radical right parties. I'm going to try to argue there's been a transformation in these political parties that that is really something we should take note of and explains why they're doing so much better electorally in Western Europe than they had done in the past. Okay, so by uh, way of background, in the 1980s, um, political scientists and sociologists in, all over the world began to note that there was a new family of parties that was starting to appear on the right wing of the European party system. These parties were interesting because they really broke in many ways with the conservative and Christian democratic parties, which had been the usual parties on the center right, that had been the usual political parties for more conservative people. In fact, they took much more strident positions than did these traditional conservative parties, which are often affiliated with churches or Christian democratic parties. These new parties embraced nationalism, were much more openly critical of immigration, especially immigration from non-European countries. They were very critical of international treaties that their governments had signed. They didn't like transnational governance, such as the United Nations or the European Union. They often called, and this is more familiar to the United States, they often also called for lower taxes and a sharp reduction of the welfare state. Now, in contemporary Europe, riven by lingering effects of the Great Recession, growing dissatisfaction of the European Union, and the current migration crisis, these parties that originated in the 80s are now gaining much more electoral ground than they had in the past. And the recent Brexit vote and the insurgent campaign, I would argue, of Donald Trump in the United States also suggest that we're in an era in which populism and nationalism are starting to really reshape politics on both sides of the Atlantic. Okay, so why did European voters begin to break with the established party system going back a couple of decades? Well, recall that the uh, first decades after the Second World War in Western Europe have been called the golden age of welfare state capitalism. Why golden age? Well, parties of the far right and the revolutionary left, which had been very popular in the interwar era, right, between the First and Second World Wars, and had made European politics very unstable and oftentimes very violent, had become, after the Second World War, marginal. Most voters move toward the center, choosing either social democratic and labor parties on the center left, or Christian democratic and conservative parties on the center right. And there was good reason for them to support these parties. These parties delivered unprecedented peace and prosperity to Western Europe in the decades after 1945. They helped to make possible high rates of economic growth, 
combined with political stability, a high degree of policy consensus across parties. So what I mean by that is that parties, when they ran for ele in elections, when they ran for office, they had some disagreements about policy, but they didn't have a fundamental disagreement about the direction of the country. And there was also a lot of social peace, growing social peace between capital and labor, which in, had also been a great source of instability in European politics before the Second World War. The hallmark of this political evolution, of course, was an expansive welfare state, which promised universal health care, retirement benefits, unemployment insurance, active labor market policies to help keep people employed and to help the unemployed gain the skills they would need to re-enter work, coordinated wage bargaining that brought together government, business groups, and labor organizations together in the same room to organize for um, increases in wage and benefits at a modest level that would benefit both the business side as well as the labor side. As a result of all this, welfare states became deeply embedded and very popular in European societies. European societies also became, during these decades, much more um, ethnically diverse, more socially inclusive, and more tolerant than they had been in previous decades. Now, one way this was manifest was that labor shortages, which began to appear in Europe, were offset by encouraging large-scale immigration, and a lot of that immigration came first from the Mediterranean region and later from the Middle East. This would be the seed of later conflict. But at the time, there was, again, broad policy consensus on these policies. Both social democratic parties and conservative parties at that time favored this migration because um, European growth was threatening to slow down because of rising labor costs. Now, of course, the gleam of that golden age began to rub off in the late 1960s in Western Europe, just like uh, in the US and Canada. And by the late 1970s, actually, many European countries had, were now in deep economic and social trouble. What happened? Well, the oil shock of the early 1970s triggered a decade of recession. That was one factor. Growth rates slowed dramatically. Heavy industries in many parts of Western Europe and Northern Europe began to fail. Unemployment increased sharply, reaching up to 20% of workers in some European countries by the late 1980s. And worse, this was high structural unemployment. So it wasn't just that there was high oscillation in employment. There were year after year in which a high proportion of people were outside the labor force. Meanwhile, large-scale immigration, especially in the context of uh, growing unemployment, began to generate social tensions in the cities and especially a lot of anger from displaced and unemployed workers. Cities in Western Europe, just as in North America, seem more disorderly and more prone to crime. Now, how did the existing policy elites um, respond? Well, one response from social democratic and pro-business conservative parties was to increase economic and social integration in Europe, to try to stimulate trade and investment through the formation of the European Economic Community and the broadening of that community eventually to the to the European Union, to try to encourage international trade investment, to try to stimulate more growth through more trade. And there's a lot of evidence that that succeeded to some extent. Growth rates of the past could not be recovered, but you know, there was some return to modest growth. However, these strategies, sometimes called neoliberal strategies, you've probably heard that term, also emphasized deregulation, so that meant that uh, it became easier to hire and fire people. It meant that some people began to be left behind by economic growth. Um, they encouraged economic globalization. That meant that some jobs you know, disappeared from Europe and are not likely to come back. 
especially in, in traditional heavy manufacturing sectors. So this left some people behind this transformation. This is a familiar story to us in the United States and Canada too, right? Left a lot of people behind, especially people in the least educated parts of the working classes. The people least prepared to adapt to this new kind of economy. Now, unlike the United States, many European countries still retained through this era admirable welfare states and very good standards of living, but they did struggle to maintain robust economic growth and full employment for many countries, especially in southern Europe, was really elusive. Now, Europeans liked a lot of aspects of the European Economic Community and later the European Union. For example, they liked better opportunities for travel, they liked better opportunities for working abroad, they liked the improvement of consumer welfare and other things that the European Union brought. But many also resented the reduction of sovereignty of their national government that was part of this package and complained about excessive regulations and excessive bureaucracy. Probably if you filed the Brexit vote in, in Great Britain, you heard a lot of that, like constant complaining about EU regulates everything, it has all these petty regulations and so on, right? And this is destroying the British way of life. So that kind of a, a criticism. Now, a big problem from the perspective of political sociologists and political scientists is that these trends, this growing dissatisfaction, this malaise, was not really effectively replied to by the existing political parties. The established parties didn't give much attention to the fact that growing segments of their populations did have real feelings of economic insecurity, real feelings of social frustration, and that stirrings of nationalism, which most policy elites in Europe thought was completely discredited by the Second World War experience, were really starting to gain ground, and that the status quo, the political elite that had de delivered that golden age, was coming into disrepute. Remember also that in Western European countries, most of them are parliamentary systems, and it's much easier in a parliamentary democracy to start new political parties and get into regional and national legislatures than is the case in the United States with its two-party system, right? So, you know, you, most of those countries work on some kind of proportionate share. If you get 10% of the vote, more or less, you get 10% of the seats in that assembly. So that means it's much easier for political entrepreneurs, for new political movements to break through, right? If they can get over whatever the electoral threshold, most countries it's 5% or 4% of the vote. If they can overcome that threshold, they get into parliament and with all the good things that comes from that. More, more uh, some, some legitimacy, greater uh, coverage from the, from the political press, um, lots of privileges and funding for their campaigns and so on, right? So there was, there was a lower threshold to getting involved in politics and getting into the system in, in, in um, parliamentary systems than would be the case in the USA. Now in that context, political scientists like Herbert Kitchell showed that the political consensus between the center right and the center left had left a lot of space on the far right that had not been supplied by the political system. So there was, there was still existing demand over there and growing demand, as I've indicated, and no parties were really speaking to it. This gave a chance for political entrepreneurs that promised greater security, that offered greater nationalism, that embraced populism, and said, hey, you Europeans who are the losers of these last couple of decades, we are the ones who will speak for you, right? Everybody else is ignoring you. The, system, the elites don't care. You know, Brussels, Paris, London, out of touch. We can address your needs. Now, these new right-wing parties initially offered a policy package 
that combined criticism of the welfare state, attacks on high taxation, with calls to an end for immigration and curtailing of the EU. So it was a kind of a package of some sort of things we'd be familiar with in the United States, right? Too much government, too much regulation, welfare state is bad, uh, we need to re reduce the hand or the size of government. On the one hand, combined with immigrants are a threat or immigrants are taking away jobs or they're too expensive or they, you know, they're a drain on the system and so on. And then, of course, attacks on the European Union. Now, the interesting thing is, these policy positions attracted some support. But it turned out, really, that combination of issues was not a robust basis for these parties. In fact, by the early 1990s, it was becoming evident that these new right-wing parties were having a lot of trouble establishing themselves. They might do well in one electoral cycle, but then they would lose in the next. Overcome that threshold, you know, do 5% or better, but not in the, in the next election. And what did they figure out? they figured out that attacks on the welfare state were not popular. European voters are generally not as hostile to government or taxation as voters on the right wing of the American political spectrum are. In addition, many regarded radical right parties as racist and as socially intolerant for being too color conscious or talking too much about race. Now, a new generation of political entrepreneurs in these parties realized this quite dramatically. And you can really see this, for example, if you know anything about the National Front in France, right? Make a contrast between Le Pen, the father, and Marine Le Pen, the daughter. She has done a very good job of distancing the party from explicit racism, from explicit talk about color and so on, right? She now speaks about citizenship and nation, not, not, not ethnicity and nation. She, and she, she has moved away from that. Secondly, they don't attack anymore really the welfare state. What do they say? The problem with the welfare state is not the welfare state. Welfare state is great. Obviously, we love it. No, the problem is people who are illegitimate are getting the benefits. It's the wrong people draw too much of the benefit. So if we can exclude them, the welfare state will be, will be safe for, for the citizens. So neonat this transformation, which I and other political sociologists call neonationalism, made a different set of claims from the radical right. It argues that social security, pensions, welfare, and so on, they're good, so long as benefits are restricted to legitimate citizens. They promise to restrict immigration. They encourage repatriation of legal residents who they think should go back to whatever country they originated from. And that national citizens should be privileged in the receiving of welfare benefits. And political scientists have called this argument welfare chauvinism. So it says welfare benefits are good, but they should only go toward the entitled, to the properly entitled members of the nation. And you probably remember this a little bit, like during the Tea Party Rebellion in the United States, there was a bit of this language as well, right? For example, you remember that some, um, some Tea Party candidates made a distinction between what they called um, earned benefits versus illegitimate entitlement. So the coding there is, you know, it's not bad for white working class people to get Social Security or other benefits, that's good because that's an earned benefit. But other people who don't work as much, presumably, or aren't of those, don't have those qualities, their benefits are actually entitlements, things that they're claiming to be entitled to without contribution or without benefit. So, you know, some of this will be familiar to you from the United States. All right. So, beyond social welfare, welfare chauvinism, what did they want? Secondly, neo nationalists say we want a strong national state. We want to restore the powers of the government. And that means they always, 
every one of these parties will always attack the European Union. And they have found that this is one of the most robust bases for popular support. Attack the European Union. Attack Brussels. Attack the European Parliament. Attack the European Central Bank. Attack the major institutions of the, of the European Union. And they all want either their governments to severely limit their treaties with the European Union or their relationship with the European Union, or they call for an outright exit uh, of their country from the European Union altogether. They also usually call for some kind of return. It's kind of vague what they mean, but some kind of call to return to a truly authentic national traditional culture and language. OK, so one bit of evidence I have to show you is, ah, OK, this is not terrific, but I'll be able to show you what it is. So this, what this is as two um, um, Maureen Ager and Sarah Valdez, who got their PhDs here in the sociology department, my graduate students, they, they uh, published a really great paper a couple of years ago in which they really did a wonderful job of showing this, proving this, demonstra demonstrating this transformation of radical right to neo-nationalism. And what they did, among other things, was they coded all the political party manifestos of all European political parties from 1970 till 2010. And what they did then is they then showed that parties vary on how authoritarian they are on this side versus liberal on the other side, how much they favor socialism on this dimension versus more free market solutions on the other dimension. And if you see, when these radical right parties emerged, you can see that they were, compared to the rest of the, par of the political parties, here we have cons Christian Democrats, conservatives, social Democrats over there, Greens up there, right? Compared to these other parties, they much more favored free market solutions and were a little bit actually less authoritarian than some of them, right? A little bit more liberal on social issues and wanting more um, free market solutions, right? So probably not so different than a lot of Republicans in the United States. But over time, you can see they basically moved in this direction. This shows the radical right. This is, sorry, it's hard to read, 1995 to 2010. Over time, they have moved to becoming more authoritarian, calling for more law and order, stricter rules on migration, expelling people who are undesirable, get tough on terrorism, you know, that, those sort of things. But the interesting thing is have moved pretty substantially to the left of their previous positions on economic issues. So they don't really focus as much on anti-taxation. They don't call for getting rid of welfare state benefits. Instead, they call for restriction of welfare benefits, as I said, to, the, to what they regard as the legitimate beneficiaries. OK. So what is this neo-nationalist platform? Welfare chauvinism, anti-EU messages, strong anti-immigration themes, promises to, res to restore security and enforce law and order against crime, and of course, more recently, a promise to tackle Islamic terrorism in a way that uh, weak centrist parties are afraid or unwilling to do. Now, does that sound a little familiar? Did anybody watch the Republican <laughs> National Convention? I mean, this was basically, if you heard Mr. Trump's uh, closing speech, I mean, a lot of the same themes, I would argue. Now, it's true that Mr. Trump is not as far to the left on economic issues, right? Not as, as favor. But he did, you know, it's remarkable to note that Trump did break with the orthodoxy of his party in, for example, saying that a priority of his administration would not be cutting Social Security benefits, right? Actually, he's promised to keep them alone. 
leave them alone, right? That's a real break with, uh, with, with, the, with the sort of economic orthodoxy of the party. So, you know, there's a little bit of evidence of this movement that he's trying to push the Republican Party to be, I would argue, more like these neo-nationalist parties. And Mr. Trump may not be, um, you know, I don't think he would portray himself as an intellectual, but he's a very savvy, but he's a very savvy and intelligent person and very aware of events around the world. And I think that if I had the chance to interview him, I would ask him what he thought, you know, about these. Remember, for example, when he was recently in Scotland to visit his golf course, he said, oh, yeah, Brexit's great, awesome, you know, like all European countries should do that. They should kill the European Union. So you can see, I would argue he's in the same family, like he's trying to move the Republicans to be in the same family as these parties. Okay, now, this neo-nationalist policy package has, I would argue, pretty much succeeded in establishing these right-wing parties in a way that was very elusive before for them. They are now, I would argue, a more or less permanent part of the European party system. They don't usually win more than 15, 20% of the vote, even in the countries that they do the best. There's a couple of countries that they do better, but mostly they win around 15, 20% of the vote. But that's a pretty stable share. That's a big, you know, that's a good share in a parliamentary system where no parties nowadays used to be, you know, after World War II, sometimes like Social Democrats would win 40 or 50% of the vote. These days, no parties do that well in European parliamentary systems. If you win 30% of the vote, usually you become the governing party. So winning 15, 20% of the vote in a parliamentary system means you've got a lot of clout. I mean, you're, you're part of the party system, and you, have, and you have say either directly or indirectly on public policy. Okay. Um, and if we take as a measure, I think one of the best ways to think about whether a party is established is to see whether it can repeatedly overcome the electoral threshold, not just in one election, but every four years, every time there's a national election, to enter regional, national, and European parliaments. And if we use that, if we use that standard, we can say that since the 90s, Neo-nationalist parties have been established in Austria, Belgium, Denmark, Finland, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and Norway. If we take the same standard since the mid-2000s, then we can say these parties are making breakthroughs in, Europe, in, in, the, in the United Kingdom, Sweden, Germany, and substantial inroads in Eastern European countries, especially Hungary, Slovakia, and, um, and the Baltic states. So this gives you, this is a nice graphic that shows the percentage of the vote that these parties get in different European countries. So there's some where they don't do well. For example, they have not done well in, in Portugal and Spain. Like they've never been, they've never gotten established there. Um, you know, they haven't done that well in Italy in some parts of Central Europe, um, you know, but this was, this was in 2010. This was at the 2010 election. So things have gotten a little better for them. I'll show you in a moment. But generally, they've done really well in places like Denmark, Norway. Quite surprising, right? Countries we think of as being very liberal, very social democratic, the most generous welfare states, highest rates of taxation in the world, you know, best standards of living. Done very well. Finland, you know, extremely well. Um, pretty well. Netherlands, another country we think of that way. And then probably the best results have been in Switzerland and, and Austria. Yes. Can you speculate on as to why Spain, Portugal, Italy, parts of Central Europe aren't seeing well? Yeah, one of the reasons why they don't do as well in the UK and um, Iberia is because there they compete against ethno-nationalist parties that don't are not calling for a, a strong national state of Spain or Portugal or Britain because those parties want a strong Catalonia. 
or a strong Scotland or whatever. So they're competing then against rivals. And so you can imagine people who vote for the, for the um, Scottish National Party, they don't want a stronger Britain. They want a weaker Britain or to exit altogether, right? And the same thing's true in Spain. So that it, it doesn't, you know, those part, it's hard for them to compete. They're competing, there's a cross pressure. They have a hard time competing against, I, I would argue. There's also some, um, another factor is I think from Spain, a place where I've lived and know a little bit about. I think another factor in Spain is that there, one thing that's really been shown over again in public opinion research is that Spaniards are much less hostile to immigrants than many other European peoples, in part because they have a history of having an overseas, um, an overseas empire that was different than other European overseas empires because there was always intermarriage. So there was le there's less of a race polarization on the immigration. The immigration is less racialized, I would say, in Iberia than it is, uh, than it is elsewhere. That's, again, speculate. That's what I think. Does the fact that they held out of their dictatorships longer than almost everybody else in Western Europe factor in, do you think? It is a factor, I'd argue, especially because both Salazar and Franco embraced Hispanismo, which is the ideology that says that Spanishness or Portugueseness is not just what you find in the, in the, um, in, in Iberia, it's also as you would find it in South America or uh, Brazil or whatever, right? So yeah, I do think so. Those, those dictators actually didn't play the race card, so to speak, at all. In fact, they tried to encourage a, a broader sense of what, of the Lusophone or the Spanish-speaking world. That's an excellent point. Generally, you're absolutely right. And it's generally true of Southern Europe in general. Um, Professor Lagos and I were at a conference uh, a couple months ago. We had a big conference called Reforming Southern Europe, which we talked about a lot of these themes. And the sad thing is, is that although I would argue, again, this is personal view, not necessarily a scientific view, although I would argue that Southern Europe has been treated rather shabbily recently by the European Union, actually, the European Union is much, generally much more, po much more popular would you say in Southern Europe than it is in Northern Europe? In part because two things. One, they associate the European Union with investment and aid and assistance, like you said. For another, they often think of, they actually think of Northern Europe as having better institutions, less corruption than they have at home. So they have a lot of hopes that European, being in the European Union will lead to you know, more cleaner, more transparent politics. That's another reason. And I think a third reason is um, the European Union used membership as an inducement in some southern European countries to exit from dictatorship and become more democratic, right? That was true in Greece, it was true in, in, in Spain and Portugal. So there's a lot of goodwill associated in that way. So I think you're right that people are not as, hostility to the European Union is not as great. That's starting to change, unfortunately, because of the austerity policies and the, and, uh, the feeling that the, that the Union is, um, I, actually, President Lagos and I can, you know, we. We had some great presentations from, from scholars in the region. And they showed that actually sad thing that's happening is that in many of the countries, with the austerity conditions that have been imposed, actually the sovereignty of these governments is vanishing. They have almost no policy independence anymore. And that's starting to lead to a change in attitude toward the European Union. But that's an excellent point. Uh, and I completely agree. All right. This shows the most recent national elections. And you can see some really impressive returns here for some of these neo-nationalist parties. Uh, the Austrian Freedom Party, 
35%. And as you saw, they almost they narrowly won that uh, a candidate from that party narrowly won the presidency of Austria. Uh, gonna, the election was so close, the Supreme Court of Austria just announced there's going to be a revote, so he may actually end up winning, even though he lost narrowly. Um, you can see the National Front did pretty well, 14% in France. Danish People's Party, 21%. Danish, Dan Denmark, right? Um, Sweden, even in Sweden, as, uh, as one of my graduate students, Maureen Eger, wrote a paper called Even in Sweden, arguing <laughs> ethno-nationalism was rising. Even Sweden, 13%. Finland, 18%, right? Pretty remarkable. And starting to get close to that breakthrough in Germany, which is you know, alarming to some people. And look at Hungary, too, 21% for. Um, and the, other, the governing party is pretty right-wing in, in Hungary as well. And then the party to its right, Jovic, which I think is in coalition with it, is very conservative party. OK. So I want to give you an example from uh, a country that I love um, very much and um, have had a chance to teach in and do research in, and that is Denmark. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what are the general Features like so. What is the? How do we explain electoral support in uh, Europe for these kinds of parties? Like who's voting for them? Why do they vote for them? That kind of thing. And then I'll turn to the case of Denmark in a little bit of detail. All right. So what? How do political scientists and political sociologists explain electoral support for these parties? First, the traditional economic cleavages that had defined European politics for a hundred years are beginning to collapse. What were those three cleavages? When Europe democratized roughly 100 years ago, there were three major social cleavages around which political parties organized. The religious cleavage, either between a Catholic party against Protestants or Protestants against Catholics, or in countries that weren't like that, secular people against Catholics or whatever, right? So there was a religious cleavage. There was an urban-rural cleavage. So there were many, most countries have had at some point, sometimes still do, have what was traditionally the peasants' party or the agrarian party against the liberals who were seen as the party of the cities and commerce, whatever. And the third major cleavage was between capital and labor, <coughs> the working classes against the owning classes. So if you think about most of the, before the rise of the neo-national parties, most of the political parties were really arrayed along those cleavages. That is falling apart. Contemporary democracies seem to have two major cleavage dimensions. Those ones are falling apart. The, the, the two major cleavage dimensions they have these days are an economic cleavage dimension, which pits workers against capital, as in the past, but also largely concerns itself with the degree of state involvement in the economy. So because the share of the traditional working class, like the people working in industries and are highly unionized, that's falling in most places. It's not so much that. It's more how much of a role should the government have in managing the economy. And the second major cleavage is what's been called the socio-cultural cleavage. That is about how does one live? What's the proper way of life? Um, and that deals with issues like the environment, immigration, law and order, abortion debate, you can go on and on, right? Moral questions about what's the best way to live. So you can see that the rise of that, cle that, that new cleavage has not only benefited the neo-national parties, but also the Greens, right? The Green parties, which promise high degree of liberalism, but more social involvement, you know, the broad rights, um, rights for homosexuals, and so on, right? Okay. Now, so obviously, the neo-nationalists 
are trying to exploit that economic cleavage, right? Especially appealing to the losers of globalization, as they often put it. But you can see that they're also trying to appeal also to um, that other cleavage as well, that how do we live cleavage, especially by focusing on immigration and the supposed collapse of law and order and national culture and immorality and so on. Um, their parties draw voters, especially from lower skilled workers, people in the lower middle classes like small business owners, struggling small business owners, people in rural areas, and senior citizens. That's basically the bases of these neo-nationalist parties. That's where they get most of their votes. Um, they have, one of the things that's been really surprising political scientists and uh, European policymakers is that many working class voters who traditionally voted for the Social Democrats or for labor parties are now switching their votes to neo-nationalist parties. And if you, if you see the, sh the vote share for Social Democrats across Europe, you'll see it has been falling especially dramatically, as we talked about, in Southern Europe. Okay. The neo-nationalist parties, they embrace populism. They are definitely trying to exploit voters who have a growing sense of dissatisfaction with the political elite, who are depicted as out of touch, insulated, you know, arrogant ruling class. I mean, it's all the rhetoric you hear, I'd argue, also in the Trump campaign, right, against Mrs. Clinton. And they portray this people against the powerful or people against the the insiders, whether in their national capital or in Brussels and Strasbourg, right? That's the end. Um, and really, they seem to make the best appeal to declining middle class people who suffer from globalization and a fear of competition for jobs. Okay, let's turn to the Danish People's Party. So Denmark's a really interesting case, and the Danish People's Party is a fascinating party that I've been studying for a couple of years, got to interview some uh, of the um, some politicians in that party. So really interesting, I think. Danish People's Party is fascinating because it's one of the most successful neo-nationalist parties in Europe, right? You saw 21% in the latest elections. Not the most, but certainly in the top tier. And really surprising given that Denmark is a very liberal society in many regards. It has the most developed welfare, you know, it battles with Sweden to have the most developed welfare state in the world, has very high rates of taxation, and very high rates of social expenditure. Also, an admirable, if you've been there, an admirable standard of living. Things seem, you know, especially from an American point of view, things seem really good. It's the good life. But not if you ask people to vote for the Danish People's Party. Okay. So what does the Danish People's Party call for? Its core platform is this. Denmark is not and must never become a country of immigration, and immigration must be severely limited, and where possible, immigrants should be repatriated. That's the main message over and over and over again. The party says it rejects a multi-ethnic Denmark and says that those immigrants and their children who are, who are legal residents of Denmark must assimilate to Danish culture. There can be no policy of multiculturalism. Okay, on the other side, it promises to bolster especially old age pensions. No surprise there, it gets a lot of votes from, from um, uh, senior citizens. And it also promises to improve social security. It promises strict law and order policies including restoration of border controls. And although it is not the governing party right now, it had so much influence, you probably know that Denmark was one of the countries that broke with the European Union and reimposed border controls during the so-called immigration refugee crisis of, of last year, right? Um, it also promises to abolish what it call, uh, abolish hate speech laws because it says that these laws are political correctness and discrimination against national conservatives, people who speak up for the nation. Again, that sounds a little familiar, I think, from the present campaign in the US. It promises to 
preserve the Danish krona, its own currency, and never allow the government to uh, enter the eurozone and take on the euro currency. It opposes the transfer of sovereign powers from Copenhagen to Brussels. It implacably imposes uh, EU membership for Turkey. It also promises to support the Danish monarchy and all national traditions. It says that Denmark should increase defense spending and domestic security spending. And interestingly, in foreign policy, it typically supports the United States very strongly in favor of Israel and says that, that Europe must fight a global struggle against Islamic terrorism and Islamism. Okay. To give you a sense of how they run, this is from an election from the 2007 election. This is a Danish People's Party election poster relating, you probably remember the cartoon controversy in Denmark? And here you can see that the, the, the caption says, freedom of speech is Danish, censorship is not. So again, they can sometimes appeal to more liberal people, right, free speech people, by saying, we're the ones who are trying to protect your free speech. It's the immigrant that's the threat, right? It's Islamism that will destroy our right. Why can't we draw a picture of Mohammed, right, in this, in this country? And you know, this has really been an ongoing issue in Denmark, because you, as you know, there's been multiple assassination attempts on one of the cartoonists. There have been terrorist attacks at theaters where the issue was being discussed by, by armed terrorists. So I mean, it's a really salient issue in Denmark. Uh, this is, couldn't be more uh, dramatic poster. This is from the 2015 election. election. I'll show you that they did extremely well. And here they say, we guarantee no mosques in Danish towns. And of course, you know, they take a picture of the biggest mosque in the world, uh, Hagia Sophia Mosque in Istanbul, but then add some swords on top, you know, so just in case, just in case, uh, you know, you might be living in some place in uh, somewhere in central Jutland, you know, you definitely don't want this gigantic mosque of swords in, uh, in a town. Okay. Then, in 2015, also hitting that same theme I talked a lot about, the anti-EU theme, here we have 2015, ask the people, remember this precedes the Brexit vote, ask the people, popular referendum on EU now. Here you see the hand of the European Union crushing Denmark. Okay, and here's its election results. So you can see that since its breakthrough in the 1990s, with one slight reversal in 2011, it has continually increased both its percentage of vote share and the number of seats in parliament to the point now where it is a very, uh, very important player. I think there's uh, 200 seats in the parliament. Um, okay. So I'll wrap up now. How many minutes do I have? Perfect. Okay. I'll wrap up now with just a few things that we can learn from these parties. All right. I hope I've convinced you that neo nationalist parties are not the right wing parties of the past. Not that there are no continuities, but there are substantial changes that I think allow us to reclassify them. They succeeded, I would argue, because they have combined welfare chauvinism with hostility to immigration and hostility to multiculturalism. They offer a populist, the populist message, return power to the people. And this is always pitched against the established political classes, especially from the centrist parties, and transnational agencies above all the European Union. They draw their electoral support mostly from older people, lower skilled workers, declining middle classes, less educated people, and rural areas. And that's basically, and that's a generalization, but it's pretty much true. And if you look at 
uh, which parts of uh, Britain voted for Brexit, you'll see the same, and who voted, you'll see the same thing. Um, they especially appeal to people, to citizens who regard themselves as the losers of the global economy and who feel threatened or um, uncomfortable with transnationalism. And they get no support from and are hostily opposed by younger people, people who've had, like research shows that people who, Europeans who have lived or worked abroad in, in Europe, lived or studied abroad in Europe, are generally very much against these parties and much more pro-European Union, for example. Or people who um, feel like they um, can compete, generally are not friendly to these parties. I think, so that's, what, ha what has the European Union done wrong, in my view, that has empowered these parties? Well, the, the, the policy response from Frankfurt and Brussels to the Great Recession and the Euro crisis, I think it's fair to say, was that the best we can say is that it was lackluster, let's say, let's say that. And in some cases, you, I, I, would, I would regard it as seriously incompetent, insensitive, and damaging. That really gives wind to the sails of the neo-nationalist parties. Because they had always been, say they said, we always told you, don't fall for the EU promises. This is bad, you know, and so on. And look, now when you were in the lurch, Italy, Greece, wherever, when you were in the lurch, did they help? No. It just imposed all this austerity on you. They keep had this, euro, this euro on you, which you can't devalue, so you're stuck with a currency that's much more valuable than your low level of labor productivity. You're in a policy trap. You can't get out. And you know what? The elites, the technocrats, the pencil necks, they don't care, right? They don't care about you. So there was a lackluster response to the immigration crisis, and then I would, I'm sorry to the, uh, to the uh, Great Recession, but I'd also argue that the response of policy elites in Europe to the, to the Great um, Migration Crisis, mostly because of Syria, also gave power to neo-nationalists because of two things. One, there were, it is clear that some people who came as migrants either were already radicalized by Islamist groups before they came or have become radicalized since they've arrived in Europe. Secondly, I don't think that's, that major uh, figures in this policy, such as Angela Merkel, I don't, I, although I think she's trying to do something about, you know, she's trying to encourage social tolerance and so on, the bad side of it was it didn't seem like she was protecting the interests of ordinary folk. She wasn't taking their worries seriously enough. And that gave space again for those on the radical uh, or the neo-nationalist right to say, you see, they don't care about you. They just care about low wages or whatever, right? Okay, so while these parties have made the most electoral headway on the European continent, similar arguments and sources of voter support are evident in the Brexit campaign, which um, Professor Shackleton will talk about a lot more this afternoon, and I argue also in Trump's ascendancy um, in, the, in the United States. Thank you for your attention. Do we have any time for questions? Uh, if you guys want to sacrifice some break time, so here, here's a fair way. Anybody who doesn't want to hear the question needs to go to the restroom and get a drink. I won't be offended if you get up and go. But but I'm very happy to answer questions. Yes. Yeah, so some uh, periodicals, so for example, The Economist after the Brexit vote said that this is going to become the new political landscape, sort of like the uh, anti-globalization versus pro-globalization. And the old left versus right is going to sort of wither away. That's sort of an extreme prediction. So. Looking at this, looking at what's happening with globalization and what's happening with ISIS, etc., I'm curious what your prediction is. Is that is that a very overstated prediction, and that this will be sort of a factor, but it'll still be 
within the old political landscape, or do you think this really is going to sort of permanently restructure the political landscape? I think that has permanently restructured the political landscape. I think these neo-nationalist parties are now permanent parts of the European party system. I think that we'll see what happens in the, in the Republican Party in the United States. We'll see after the election. There's going to be one way or another, whether Trump loses or wins, there's going to be a big fight in that party over what the future of the party is going to be. Should it still try to be a neoliberal, you know, free trade, low taxes party, or should it try to become a neo-nationalist party? I think that fight is going to be had. Maybe they won't use those terms, but that I think fight's going to happen. Um, I don't think that the, uh, the existing part, like the established parties or you know, the middle of the road parties are going to wither or, and die or collapse in Europe, but I think that their vote share is going to continue to, 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 to diminish, not just because of being losing votes on the right. I think that new parties are going to merge on the left as well. More radical left-wing parties and more libertarian parties like the Greens are going to start getting more. Because I think the old, the, the, the share of Europeans that are very well connected to the social bases of the Social Democratic Party, like labor unions, workers' associations, neighbor associations. Younger Europeans are not as involved in those things as their parents and grandparents were. Um, likewise, the basis of a lot of conservative voting in Europe used to be involvement in church leagues, church youth groups, and then eventually they would then start voting for the Christian Democratic or conservative parties. As you know, church-going Europe continues to plummet. People's attachment to those confessional, old-fashioned confessional churches really weak. So I think that the social bases from a sociologist's point of view, I, don't, I just don't think the social basis for mobilizing people is going to be very effective that way. So I think those parties won't disappear, but they're going to shrink. And I think that more policy space is going to, more space is going to open up on the right and the left. I think you're going to see more left-wing parties. Like, for example, uh, Podemos in Spain, right, or new, a new left-wing party that's very critical of the Social Democrats. Or um, Syriza in Greece, and parties like that I, I would expect to see will continue to do well. Yes? Um. So if we think about these parties as legitimate parties, is there any kind of implied violence in their messages? That's an excellent question. One big, I should have mentioned this, glad you brought it up. One big difference between these parties today and in the past is when they were emerging in the 80s, they were more prone to violence. Like, for example, sometimes had ties to skinhead gangs or bikers and things like that. But these parties have, as they've, as they've gotten more successful, they've also become a little more domesticated, and they've tried to distance themselves from that. Now, occasionally, one of their politicians will you know, be caught saying something explicitly racist or violent or something like that. But for the, most, and for the most part, that's starting to diminish as they become more domesticated. For example, from time to time, you'll hear it'll make the news like Marine Le Pen will expel somebody from the party who's using that kind of rhetoric or you know, she, I think she expelled her father from the party, right? Like, she had to, like, I think like more than once he's been thrown out of the party. So, you know, they are trying to do that. But there's, a, there's still, in many cases, there's still a hint of it. Um, but one thing that's really different than radical right parties in the past, like in the interwar period, radical right parties, you know, formed militias and gangs and attacked, like, like you know, would attack people on election day or try to close down, you know, electoral precincts in areas they knew wouldn't go for them. That, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. In fact, these neo-nationalists are trying to say they're the true law and order parties. They're the ones who are friends of the police, and they're the ones, you saw the same theme also in Cleveland, if you've been watching that. Yeah. So, yes? Um, do you think that's different than like the Southern Poverty Law Center has been you know, bringing out how the increase in hate groups in this country and all? Do you feel like that's, is there a disparity in the level of threat between what's happening in Europe versus what's happening in the US? And, 
What, one big difference in the US, between the US and Western Europe is that we have many more arms. So radical people of any disposition, radical left, radical right, radical religious people, whatever, they just have access to, to many more weapons, powerful weapons. So a handful of like ideologically annoyed cranks can do a great deal of that, great more damage here than they can do uh, in Europe, usually. Although, you know, there's, I mean, the fact those Islamic extremist attacks, you know, have used trucks or, you know, solitary gunmen and so on. So, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a worry. Um, I would say that what I think that organizations like um, Southern Poverty Law Center are right about is that when more anti-immigrant and more implied race language is used, it does also empower fringe groups to be more visible and to um, speak more explicitly about what they want. That's happening in Europe as well. Now, these parties are trying to distance themselves from those groups, but I would argue that they have, in a way, green-lighted those groups, right, even if they maintain a distance from them. I'm not saying that they're actively encouraging those groups, but I'm saying that when the discourses change, it signals to people that they can say stuff they couldn't say before. I mean, I saw it in the United States. You know, when, when um, George Bush, second President Bush, when he uh, introduced a comprehensive immigration reform, which was bipartisan but, you know, failed in the end, right? The Democrats supported it, but the Republican, most of the Republicans didn't support their own president's legislation. I remember around that debate, I began to hear anti-immigration things being said against immigrants, against minorities, being out, spoken out loud in ways that actually shocked me. And now I've noticed they are permanently now part of American political discourse. You can, you can just say that stuff now in a way it just wasn't acceptable to say it before. And I think that... That's an ugly development in the United States, and a similar ugly development can be observed in, in Europe, too. I think people are getting away with saying stuff that in the 70s or 60s would have been regarded as totally outrageous. Like, you can't just assert that some whole group of people is disproportionately rapists and murderers, for example, right? Like, it used to not be okay to say that. Like, now, not that everybody likes that that's said, but the media reports on it over and over and over, right? And, the same, and, I, and I do find that that's happening in Western Europe, too. T taboos about speech, taboos about how you refer to other groups, uh, how you refer to Muslims, how you refer to immigrants, uh, have, been, have been lifted in that sense. That's one you know, sort of collateral damage of the rise of these, these groups. So as a sociologist, is there any way to pull back from that? It's hard because the main, pe main voices saying pull back from it would be you know, people like academics and mainstream politicians. But the more they say that, the more then these groups say, oh, there you go again, trying to restrict us. There you go again, out of touch elites. There you go again, right? Trying to, sh you know, the, the elites against the people and so on, right? So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard thing. And I think rather than trying to, to ban the speech, I think you've got to contend with the speech. You've got to, I think that's the better way. And I think, uh, you know, let, as much as possible, I think you've got to let movements on the far left and far right, let them into the political system. Let them compete for votes. Because my confidence is that they, they'll win votes in unhappy times and unsettled times like ours, but they're not going to do extremely well. And when people really look at what they can deliver on the policy side, whether they can really make their lives better, they're going to mostly see the answer is no. I think that's a lot better than trying to always brush them into the corner, because that's a good place for them, because they can say, you see, we told you. They'll never give us a chance. That's how they are, right? The elites, like college professors, you know, powerful people like us, are constantly 
People who can't people who can't get a parking pass are the ones who <laughs> are shutting everything down. Yes. Well, you're advocating something like Mills free marketplace of ideas. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's in some ways kind of unsatisfying because sometimes that free marketplace of ideas means the bad penny the bad penny rises. I know that, but I don't see uh, a viable alternative to it. Um, I think that, for example, trying to expand hate speech legislation turns out to be counterproductive, for example. I think trying to impose media taboos turns out to be, especially in the era of the internet and social media, you know, it's not really effective and turns out to, to, to you know, for example, I think uh, the recent handling by the federal government of this occupation of this, these federal lands in, in, in um, Eastern Oregon was brilliantly done because don't try to storm in there and shut them down. Don't take away their microphone. Let them talk. And the more they talked, the worse things looked, right? I mean, like, oh boy. Even as words like, okay, take away the mic, right? So I think that's the better way to do it. You know, don't let yourself be provoked. Don't let yourself overreact. Don't, then you're the oppressive one, whatever. And then on the other hand, um, eventually, I mean, look at Mr. Trump, right? There are moments of real coherence where he articulates something like a neo, what I would call a neo-nationalist policy agenda. For example, he did that, I thought, very effectively in his speech on Monday in Detroit. But then, you know, a couple of days later, he doesn't have, you know, he gets away from prepared remarks, he's got the mic, he loves the, loves the, you know, loves the audience, and then he starts talking about Second Amendment solutions and this, and, you know, that's, that I think is the better, you know, that's the better way. Yeah. You mentioned with the uh, but it's it's thin soup sometimes because it, because sometimes it doesn't work and the bad penny the bad penny rises right. It's true. You mentioned with the occupation in Eastern Oregon, as I read that the FBI they they consciously went after that approach after fiascos in Waco and Ruby Ridge and things like that. They, and and when people saw what these people were posting online, what they did to the refuge. Uh, you just let, and essentially it just became evidence that you could use for them down the road and you actually did apprehend them. Exactly. And there's been some effective use of that by anti-racism um, organizers in, in Western Europe, by the way. Some of them have done that. They've done a good job of documenting, like, this is what happens when these parties become dominant in city council. Like, this is the, you know, this is the nastiness that occurs, right? And that's, that's often more effective. Yes? I'd like to, if you don't mind, ask about earlier in your talk, you talked about the 1980s when the rising of neo-nationalism with the economic crisis and the start of the world, um, the crisis and whatnot. I'm just curious as to how people went from the economic turbulence to attacking the welfare state, when in fact that provided a lot of you know, subsistence or services that a lot of people relied on. Well, your intuition is correct, and it didn't, su and didn't, well, it didn't succeed. Right. I, just, I guess I just don't understand, because like the far right on your chart with the free market, all of a sudden those people are attacking the welfare state. Um, just yeah, and it didn't work. Okay. Right, and so they, they, you know, they learned their electoral lesson. It didn't succeed, right? Okay. And so then they, they, moved, they, they crossed that line toward, toward more support for the welfare state. But like state. even today, though, the far right attacks the welfare state, or the neo-nationalists do as well, right? So I'm kind of Well, in Europe, they don't. Mind, you know? In Europe, they don't as much. Europe, they attack the welfare state insofar as they think that benefits are going to people who don't deserve the benefits, immigrants. But in, but in the U.S., they do, though, right? Yeah, in the U.S., it's different. Yeah, I agree. The neo-nationalists do as well. Yes, I would agree. I would agree. And this, so I don't think that the U.S., if, if this evolution is occurring in the United States, it's just beginning here. They haven't crossed over to that more pro-welfare position, and may, maybe never will. Or maybe they're not cognizant of where they fall into that. That 
this is an emerging thing here, so it could be. All right, I'm going to go because I know there's another <laughs> presenter, and I don't want to take up the floor up anymore. Thank you for your attention. So, guys, we're going to get started here pretty soon. Like